0: morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. As Elliot said, we're in the middle of a series entitled Authentic Christian. We're considering what it means to be a follower of Christ. And there is a lot of confusion out there right now about what it means to be a Christian. And our purpose in this series is not to uh, use this information to try to determine who is and who isn't. That's none of our business. What is our business is to be very clear on what it means to follow Christ and then make our own decisions on whether or not we are going to follow Christ. So if you're here today and you're just beginning to investigate what it might mean to be a Christian, I think this will be very helpful for you. If you've already made that decision, uh, I think these um, message series is going to be very helpful in re-clarifying what it is that you've decided and making sure that you're on track in your Christian walk. Now, our guide for this series is the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And in these 17 verses, there are Nine identifiers that are given. Three sets of three. There are the three decisions that Christians make, and then the three practices that Christians work on, and then the three perspectives that Christians live from. We began on Easter Sunday by considering the three decisions that Christians make, and they are identified by three words that precede the name of Christ in the first four verses. And each of these words begin with the same letter, the letter, the letter W. There is the with, the where, and the when. With Christ, where Christ, and when Christ. So Christians are those who look at the evidence behind the life of Christ, and they conclude that there is a logical explanation for what Jesus taught, uh, the miracles that he performed, in particular his resurrection. And they conclude that what Jesus said about himself was true, that he is in fact God in flesh come to earth to save us. And so they decide, based on that evidence, to attach their life to Him, to be with Him. That's the first decision, the first W. And that changes the the trajectory of their life. They are raised with Christ. And that changes this life and the life to come. And then that begins to shift over time what's important to them, what they live for. They begin to live for what's important in heaven because that's where, the second W, that's where. Christ is. So the value structures that we have that are based on whatever cultures and families we grew up and begins to change over time and reflect more of what's important to God, what's important in heaven. They have found the secret to life. That's where Christ is. It's in Christ. He is the treasure. And that then alters the expectations they have on daily life. Like anybody, they would prefer their life to work out well and they would prefer their days to go well. But they are willing to wait for when Christ returns. That's the the third W, in order for everything to work out. They understand that it's not until Christ returns and wraps up history that all of the wrongs will be made right and that what doesn't make sense now will be made sense of. And so they are willing to wait for when Christ returns. And with these three decisions in place, Christ followers then go to work on the implications of these decisions they put in place three practices. And these practices are seen in three lists that are found in verses 5 through 14 of Colossians 3. The first list, the one we considered last Sunday, contains the essential training instructions on how to reduce the tendency we all have to form God-level attachments to the things here on earth, to make idols out of something here, and to organize our life around these idols. And this is what drives the sin in our life. We decide that there's Something here that we want more that's more important to us than God himself and what he said, and we begin to make idols out of those, and that causes us to sin. And the first list gives us the practices that are necessary to begin to to break the attachments that we have to the things here on earth. The next two lists, the ones we're going to look at today, are the practices then that help us to learn how to really love other people. This is one of the key marks of a Christ follower is the quality of relationship they offer over time is significantly different than what it was before they began to follow Christ. As Jesus said, as Steve mentioned earlier, people will know that you are Christians by the way you love other people. And in order to learn how to love, there are two lists that help us do this. There are things that we must put off, and then there are things that we must put on. There's the put-off list and the put-on list. So let's begin. Colossians 3, verses 7 through 10. This is what it says In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, these lists are not just a set of random words that could be put in any particular order. These lists are in order because they describe the patterns of our life and how these patterns build over time. And this list that we just read relates to the common patterns of how we learn how to grow up and how we learn how to relate to people, and they are the paths that we tend to walk in. In fact, they are so common to us, that it would be fair to say, as it says here, we live this way. This is how we live. We live in these paths. And for those who decide to follow Jesus, what happens over time is these patterns increasingly become a thing of the past. They don't ever completely go away. We must keep practicing, but they diminish over time. And they increasingly become the way we once walked and how we were living but not so much how we are walking and how we are living. So how does this shift occur? How how do we change the way we relate to people? Well, it takes practice. As it says here, we put off the old self with its practices. You see, the way that we are and the way we relate to people is not just haphazard. It's not something magical. It doesn't just occur. We have learned our patterns through the years. Years of practice. We didn't just select a way of treating people. We have practiced a way of treating people. So if we're going to put on the new self, as it says, and change the way we treat people, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a lot of practice. And the two lists that we're going to be looking at contain these essential training practices that we will need to do repetitively if we're going to learn how to love. Now, I wish it was easier. I wish we could just decide to treat people better and decide to be more loving. But we can't just pull it off with a decision. We've got to practice. About three years ago, my back just started giving me problems for no apparent reason. I mean, I just turn a certain direction. Oh, all of a sudden, my lower back would go out and I would be in pain, sometimes just crawling on the floor and hardly able to move for as much as a week or two weeks sometimes. And there appeared to be no particular move that I could make that caused this. There appeared to be no reason. So I went to the doctor, had it checked out, and the doctor informed me that my core muscles were not strong enough to support my, this is what he said, aging back. (laughs) I paid money for this diagnosis. I didn't like what he said, but I think he was right that as my back ages, it deteriorates, and it requires strength that it didn't require before from the muscles that support the bones around my back. So I made a decision. I didn't want to be in that kind of pain regularly and just have it happen out of the blue, so I decided to strengthen my core. Now, that decision didn't make me stronger. I had to practice to become stronger. My practicing has taken two forms. There are new things that I'm doing, like lifting weights and stretching, and there are old things that I'm no longer doing, like watching as much TV late at night. Now, the reason that I have to do both of these is because in order for me to get up early in the morning and exercise something that was new, I had to cut out something that was old and go to bed earlier in order to make room for the new practice. It's the same if you're going to... learn how to love. You can't just crank up the emotion. You're going to have to put off some of the old ways of relating, and you're going to have to practice putting them off. And at the same time, you're going to have to practice putting on the new ways of relating. This is how we change. Now, Christ gives us power and helps us in this, but we have to begin to practice. So these are the two lists. First of all, the put-off list. We have to put off the practices of manipulation This is the one word I think that describes the entire put-off list best. You see, the main reason that we don't love others that well is because we're too busy using them for our own purposes, for our own needs. Now, if we would just ask people to help us with what we want or what we need, that would be fine. Give them the freedom to say, yes, I can help you and I can do that, or no, I cannot, that would be perfectly fine. But in order for us to ask for help, it's humbling. It implies that we have needs that we can't address on our own, and a lot of people don't want to admit that. And the other problem with asking is they might refuse us. They might say no, and then we're stuck because we really do need them to do something or want them to do something. So the common pattern we have of trying to get what we want from people is rather than ask them, we manipulate them into giving us what we want. Webster defines manipulation this way. It's to control to one's own advantage. We, we try to figure out ways that we can get a hold of someone and manipulate and push them and move them to do and say what we want them to do. Now, no one has to teach us how to do this. It just, we learn this naturally. We don't have to rehearse this. It, it's developed even young, early in life. I remember one time when our son, he was just three and he was in the bath and I came in and I had given him a warning that it was almost time to get out. And so I said, all right, son, it's time to get out of the bath. And his response was, his little lower lip started quivering and he said, why are you so mad at me? (laughs) I hadn't raised my voice. I hadn't said anything harsh. But man, the last thing I want to be is a hothead parent and an angry parent, I've seen that and I, I didn't want to have any part of that. So it put me back on my heels and I said, son, I'm not angry with you. And he started crying, yes, you are. You're, why are you angry at me? And so for the next 15 minutes, I tried to explain to a three-year-old why I wasn't angry. And it took me 15 minutes, but finally it occurred to me, he's been sitting in the tub the whole 15 minutes. <laughs> he gained another 15 minutes of bath time by manipulating me. And it, I, I, I turned around and I said to my wife, He's good. He had not been to any manipulation classes. We had not trained them. Maybe he had observed us doing some things. I don't know, but he was good at this. He had me wrapped around his little finger for 15 minutes. That's the that's term we use often when we admit someone's got us. They've got a string attached to us, and it's wrapped around their little finger. They don't have to do much. They just pull a little bit, and, and we come moving. That phrase, wrapped around a little finger, comes from the way a person can control a yo-yo. If you ever play with a yo-yo, you, you wrap it around a finger, and you send it down, and then you pull it back up, and you send it down, and you pull it back up. And it's a great image of manipulation. We find some leverage that we can use on somebody, some string that we can attach to them and them to us, and then we subtly send them out to do our bidding, and then bring them back for the next assignment, and then send them out for our bidding, and then bring them back for the next assignment. Now, this kind of stuff happens very subtly. I mean, I didn't know, at least for 15 minutes, that my three-year-old son had gained control of me. And he didn't know that he was doing it. In fact, this was one of the words that we really wanted our kids to understand. We wanted to understand when they were manipulating and we wanted to understand when people were trying to manipulate them. And it took a number of years for them to grasp the understanding of what manipulation was. It's very subtle things. People do this with largely unawareness. Now, manipulative strategies tend to develop in one of two streams. They are either forceful manipulative strategies or deceptive manipulative strategies. So we either push people to do what we want or we trick them into doing it. We pull them into doing what we want. Now, the list contains both the push and the pull, but most of the items on this list are the push items. The last item is the pull item. So let's look at this list. Now, as as I said, this list, as with all these lists, they're, they're not just random words that could be arranged in any order. They describe the power of how these patterns grow in our life. So the push list of manipulation starts with anger. And the word anger means to swell up. So if you or your agenda are not getting the attention that you would like or you think that you deserve, how can you enlarge your profile? Well, anger is a common strategy. Now, that you, now you've got everyone's attention. Now, there are people that have authority in our lives, and they can tell us, they have the right to tell us what to do. If you work at a company and you're under authority, your boss really does have the right in the realm of the business or the company to direct your work. The problem is, is we don't have near as much authority over people as we do interest over what they do. And so rather than pretending that we are their boss, we just inflate ourselves in anger and we increase our profile emotionally. And what happens when we do that? Well, people tend to kind of scramble because we're acting like we're in charge. And so people sometimes decide that they're going to, just to calm us down, they're going to do what we are asking them to do or what we're implying that we want them to do. But once we open up anger and we swell up in anger, it moves to the next level, which is wrath. Now, we think anger and wrath are the same thing, but the word here in the Greek language, which is what this list originally was, describes its consuming desire. And you might remember this is the same word for evil desire in the first list that we looked at last week. And I described it as being on an icy hill. And once you push off on a sled on an icy hill, you've got a few inches to decide, no, I don't want to do this and stop. But once that sled gets going and the momentum starts building, you're along for the ride. You've lost control. Desire has taken over. And that's what happens when we get angry. We lose control. You know, we don't decide the size of our anger. We don't decide, you know what, I I think about a level three anger would would get the person to respond the way I want right now. Now, this person seems pretty hard, and we're going to have to take it to level seven. So let's just dial up a level seven anger, and then we stop at level seven. Now, the way anger works is once you uncork it, you don't know how big it's going to get. You're down the icy hill, and the anger is just rolling. And it can cause a lot of devastation when you lose control and you uncork the anger. And then after anger has turned into malice, or wrath rather, then it turns into malice. Which means to bring trouble on another person. So now you take it, we take it from just emotionally posturing and just being upset. In whatever form we, we get angry. Now we move it to the level where we're, we're trying to punish them. We're trying to bring some kind of harm to them. They haven't cooperated and so now we're going to punish them for it. Now, why do we move beyond just the emotion to the action? Well, it's because the emotion doesn't always work. I mean, how do people tend to respond to you when you get angry? If they don't know you very well, if it's a new relationship, well, they may scramble and just to preserve a moment of peace, they'll they'll do whatever you want to be done, or they'll respond in a way that you want them to respond. But some people don't get out of the way and give us what we want. So... We have to take it to the next level, especially those who are close to us. If you have a pattern of getting angry and someone is close to you, they've seen this again and again, and they know know, it's just a posture. And maybe they get angry in response. And so anger doesn't always bring about what we want, so we've got to take it to the next level, and that is we've got to punish them now. Sometimes we punish them emotionally by maybe withdrawing, giving them the silent treatment, you know, withdrawing relationship from them so that they'll see the error of their ways and they'll come crawling to us and give us what we want. Sometimes we find a way to block what they want. We know they want this thing and, or they want this response and we're not going to give it to them. Or we're going to say something that's going to cut them to the heart and they will learn to never cross us again. So that's malice. And then malice moves on to slander. Slander means to defame. What this means is we go public with our anger. We gather an audience for it. You see, when we get angry, rarely do we just keep it to ourselves. If we're really upset, if someone really hasn't done what we want them to do, we broadcast it. And in doing so, we actually begin to manipulate other people to our cause. You know, whenever you're slandering someone to another person, and you're upset, they know that they better do this. They better nod in agreement, or you might talk about them poorly to someone else. And so we begin to gather momentum for our anger. We begin to justify our anger as we slander this person to other people who's not giving us what we want. And that results in obscene talk. About obscene talk, it's not just talking about swearing here. It could be that. But what it really means is to disfigure someone. The idea is that we use our words to distort the image of this person in the eyes of other people. And the result is, as we paint this horrible image of the person we're angry at, we get more and more people angry at them. And our anger spreads from us to other people. And even though we might eventually calm down, well, it's now out of our hands. Other people are caught up in this. And so in the attempt to control, in the attempt to manipulate through anger and pushing, we we do all kinds of damage in relationships. It's the opposite of love. It's hurtful. it's, It's damaging. Now, the other stream of manipulation is deception. That's why the last item on this list says, do not lie to one another. So in this approach, rather than bluster our way to get what we want, We try to control the facts in order to trick people into giving us what we want. And there's many different ways we do this. I mean, we might just lie outright in order to get someone to behave or to say or to do what we want them to do. More often, we edit out the important facts in order to create the impression that gets the result. You know, when you edit something, you can frame it in all different kinds of ways. You're not necessarily telling a lie by what you're saying. You're telling a lie by what you're not saying. If they were to know the whole story, they were to know everything about this, they probably wouldn't do what we want them to do or say what we want them to say. So we know how to edit so that people then will do what we want them to say. Another common tactic of deception is we exaggerate our emotions to get people to come running to our aid. We're sad, or we're overwhelmed, or we're disappointed, or we're hurt, and all of that's fine. If you are sad, it's okay to be sad. If you're feeling overwhelmed, it's okay to be overwhelmed and for people to know that. If you're disappointed, that's fine. If you're hurt, that's fine. But what happens is eventually the circumstances or the emotion begins to fade, and we're not as disappointed as we were. We're not as hurt as we were. We're not as sad as we were. But we've discovered that whenever we are sad or disappointed or hurt, what do people do? They come running to our aid. And so we decide, you know what, I'm going to hang out here for just a little bit longer because I like this attention. People are seeing me as a victim and, oh, when you're a victim, lots of people come running. And so we are sad more than we really should be and we're disappointed longer than we really should be and we're, we're hurt more often than we really should be. Then people begin to rally around us because we're just down. Now, if you're down, that's fine. But don't linger there for the purpose of manipulation. Another thing we do in the, the deceptive area is we generate false guilt. This is a huge tool of manipulation. Manipulation. We try to get people to feel guilty for not doing what we want them to do. We often do this emotionally again. We act hurt simply because, not because they've done wrong to us, but because they haven't done our bidding. And because we're all upset, most people's only definition of love is, if you're upset with me, I must have done something wrong. That's not necessarily the case. And because most people don't think more deeply about love, they're very easy to manipulate. And if we get upset with them, they're like, what, what, what do you want? I'm sorry, what do I need to do? And we are generating false guilt in them, which is an awful thing to do for somebody. To burden them down with something, make them feel guilty for something they did not in fact do wrong, there's already enough real guilt. We don't need to pile on false guilt. But this is boy this is one of the more powerful tools of deceptive manipulation. Let me feel you let me make you feel guilty for something that you are not in fact guilty for. I mean people will do our bidding sometimes for years if we can make them feel guilty about something that they're really not guilty about. So what is your favorite flavor of manipulation? Do you prefer pushing or pulling people to do what you want? Maybe you alternate But we've all practiced these patterns. We all have learned them, not in classrooms. Just growing up and relating, we've learned how to get what we want because we're selfish. We don't love very well. But we need to practice putting these off, stopping these patterns. Now, we don't just work through the first list, and once we've perfected that, then we move on to the second list. Now, these two lists we work on simultaneously, just like me with my back. I don't stop certain things, and once I've got them all stopped, then I start the exercising. No, we put things off and put things on at the same time. Oftentimes, you'll find that you can't put off completely until you put on. You replace these things. So this is the put on list. These are the practices of love. And as I said, love in our culture is, is a very vague, it's, it's, I call it a marshmallow word. It's just like fluffy and nobody really knows what it is. It's thought of mostly as an emotion. But this list, I think, is one of the greatest descriptions of what love actually does and looks like. So let's, let me read this list to you, Colossians 3, 12-14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and deeply loved, beloved. There's the list. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So here's the list. Here's where love starts. It starts with compassion. The word means to have pity on or to feel with. The idea is You begin to love someone once you are moved to help them. Now, how do you develop compassion for someone else? I mean, you can't just muster up compassion. Compassion has a reason. I think one of the best ways to learn compassion is to learn the story of a person. Learn their story. You see, it's easy to treat people as objects to be used, for your purposes until you get to know some of their story. Objects don't have stories. They're just objects, they're just things. People have stories. And those stories are filled with fears and they're filled with failures and they're filled with joys and they're filled with sadnesses. And it's those storylines, the drama of people's story that, that often drives many of the patterns in their life. And we get irritated with the patterns until we understand the story and we begin to figure out, well, that's why they struggle with this. I, understand, I have, I have a, a feel for them now. They didn't just choose this. They experienced this and then developed this pattern out of that experience. So one of the great exercises of compassion, I think, is to learn to ask people questions. Now, people aren't just going to sit down and say, well, let me tell you my entire story. You know, if, if they do, that's, that's odd. That's weird. That's probably manipulative. So just take an interest in people. And as you get to know them, keep asking questions. Take a real interest in them. And your compassion will go up as you ask questions and learn more about them. And then from compassion, kindness comes. Kindness means to give what is helpful. So first your heart is moved to do what is helpful, and then kindness is the act. You do what is helpful. Now, how do you know what would be helpful for another person? Well, you have to put in some thought. You know, if I was in their shoes, knowing what I know about them in this situation, what would I want? What would help me? What would be kind to me? What, What would encourage me? And then you do that. Now, what this means is you can't rush by someone and be kind. You can't do drive-by kindness. It takes time. You have to stop long enough to think what's going on and, and what might be helpful, and then long enough to do that. It may not be a huge act, but, but you're going to have to stop long enough to be kind. And then the next element is humility. This means low-minded a literal translation of it. Now, that doesn't mean stupid or dumb. What it means is that you don't approach people with the absolute certainty of arrogance. This is the way we tend to approach people. You know, we size people up, we form a first impression, and we put them in a category of absolute certainty, and we leave them there. Humility realizes that things may appear this way, but people are complicated. They're complex. And so absolute certainty is just not fitting when I'm dealing with a human being that's got a history that I really don't know. So I, I'm rather than approach them from uh, looking down, I know who you are, I know what you're about, I know what you're like. No, love says, let me look up and, and let me take an interest and, and let me be curious about who you are and let me learn about who you are. I may have some impressions. Some of them may turn out to be true, but I don't know you. So I'm going to approach you in humility, not not in arrogance from a a low angle and not a descending angle. Now, these first three items on the list of love are about how we move towards people in love. The next next two items on the list are about absorbing the poor treatment that love has to endure if it's going to continue to love, the poor treatment of others. See, just because you decide to love Doesn't mean everybody's going to do the same. And this is one of the great killers of love. You decide, you know what? I really do need to amp up my compassion and my kindness and my humility as I approach people. And you start working on this and exercising this and then someone is arrogant with you and someone is unkind to you and someone shows no compassion to you and you know what? The deal's off. Love is over. You know, I did it for a week forget that. So if love is going to endure, it's going to have to learn how to, en- how to give what it's not receiving. And these next two items are about that. Meekness. This means gentle when provoked. Oh, this is so hard to do. You know, recently a guy in traffic just started honking at me, and he couldn't see what was going on in front. He just knew I was in his way. And his only tool of manipulation was the horn. So he was honking at me in anger. And so meekness in that situation requires a gentle response, really a no response in this place. But you know, that's not what rose in my heart. The, the challenge with meekness is meekness in the face of provocation feels like weakness. I mean, what I, what I thought is, you know what, who is going to, help this guy learn how to drive if I just let him get away with this. I mean, there's a, there's a teachable opportunity here. <laughs> He's not interested in what I have to say or what my horn has to say back at him. What's been a, a help to me on this is the example of Jesus. I mean, you, you just think of, of what Jesus put up with. The provocation that he endured is, is stunning. Here he is, God in flesh, the one who created the people who nailed him to the cross. More than that, the people who surrounded that cross and mocked him and insulted him and spit on him. They weren't honking their horns at him. They were spitting on him. And he took it. And he actually said, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. So why can't I say that about a guy honking the horn? He, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's probably had an awful day Anger is his chosen tool, I understand, because that's often my chosen tool. Well, I'm not just going to suddenly be meek. I have to practice it, just like you have to practice it. And then the other tool to help us deal with when people do not love us back is patience. Patience is a compound word in the Greek language here. The word is long plus enduring. I think that's just a great description of patience. How long do I need to endure? Longer. (laughs) Really? That's hard. See, people won't just treat you poorly on occasion once or three times or five times. They're like you. They're like me. They get caught up in their little worlds and they'll run over you without even thinking about it. So there's two parts of patience in a relationship. Sometimes you just need to bear with another person. That's what it says here, bearing with one another. What that means is just just putting up with it and not getting angry. Many times you need to go to the next level, and that is forgive. You just need to forgive them for what they've said. That'd be great if they would ask you for forgiveness, but a lot of times people don't. You just need to forgive them. You see, if you are unwilling to forgive, if I'm unwilling to forgive, before long there's going to be no one left to love. Because everyone that you're close to, especially, is going to have done you wrong. Why should we forgive? Well, as it says here, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The image that is in the New Testament that's a very dominant theme is, is in Christ, God has forgiven us an incredible debt of sin. And so it makes absolutely no sense for us to turn around and prosecute our case against someone who's done us wrong while at the same time we're receiving mercy. It is the forgiveness of Christ that informs our forgiveness of other people. And then it concludes by saying, and above all these, put on love. That's the summary of this entire list. This is what it looks like to love. That's that's at the top. That's above all these things. This, This is what this list is. Love, which does what? It binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, harmony is a word we use not only for relational connection that is good, but we also use it for music, not just a single instrument. You need multiple instruments for there to be harmony, just like you need multiple relationships for there to be love. So in a sense, love is kind of like an orchestra. Love can take all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances and pull them together into something of tremendous beauty and harmony. But for that to happen, you need two things. There's two requirements. Number 1, you need individuals who have practiced their instruments well. You know, if you if you pull an orchestra together, an 80-piece orchestra together just by grabbing people off the street and handing them a random instrument and then saying, "All right, everybody, blow on your instrument." You are not going to have harmony. Every member of the orchestra needs to know and have practiced their instrument well in order for there to be harmony. And that's what these two lists are about. These are the scales, the instruments and the scales to practice love. You can't come up with love without this. The second thing that we need is we need a conductor. Someone to lead us in this growth of love, someone who can bind all of us together in harmony. And without Christ, love lacks harmony. It'll eventually turn people against each other. Harmony between you and others doesn't just happen the moment you decide to be with Christ. I mean, at that moment, you do get a conductor, but you still need to practice. So what I would recommend is look at both of these lists If you know now, go ahead and circle one word on each of the lists. But if you don't, take some time and and just pick one of the words on each of these two lists and go to work on it. Come up with some exercises. Maybe as we're going through it, it's like, oh, I do that all the time. Or I almost never do this on the put-on list. Begin to practice. Now, just to encourage you, these words are about practicing, not performing. We do not do these perfectly. And if we stop doing these, no matter how far we've advanced in learning how to love, our love begins to diminish. For me, if I stop exercising after about two weeks of no exercise, my back starts messing up. So it's not just three months of exercise and now my back is locked in. It's the same with love. We will need to practice these scales on these instruments until the day we see Jesus face to face when he returns. Now, how can you tell if someone's practicing an instrument? They get better over time, right? When I was younger, I played the violin for seven years. The first year was excruciating for my parents. I mean, violin is just a torturous instrument to hear someone learn. It sounds like, you know, you're stepping on a cat's tail for like the first year. But if it was year five or year six, what? And I was still sounding like that and squeaking and the squawking? it would be fair for someone to say, are you practicing? How much and how often? So if if we're not learning how to love, if the quality of relationships that we offer to people is not increasing over time, there's a good possibility we're not doing the scales. We're not practicing. We're just trying to love. We're just hoping to show up the night of the performance and know our part. But we don't because we haven't practiced. And when the pressure comes and someone wrongs you, you're not going to forgive because you haven't been practicing it. And when there's an opportunity to be kind, you're not be, it's not even going to occur to you because you haven't been practicing it. If you are a Christian, what that means is over time, you, have, you put off the old self with all of the well-practiced patterns of manipulation. And now you're on track to becoming a different kind of person. Now, day by day, week by week, even month by month, it's probably imperceptible. But as the years go by, the people that know you notice. There's a difference. You're not as angry as you used to be. You're not as pushy as you used to be. You're not as sad all the time as you used to be. You're beginning to change. You're beginning to actually love people. You're becoming the kind of person, as it says here, who is being renewed. That's a process. You're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. What does that mean? You are regaining the memory of the capacity that God gave you when he created you. God gave you and me the capacity to love like he loves. But you see, we've we've worked so hard on the manipulative patterns that we have forgotten who we have been created to be. But as we practice these scales, and as we put off and put on, we get better and better at love. That's who we were made to be. And as we do that, something amazing happens. There's another list that describes the amazing thing that happens. It's embedded in between these two lists. Here's the list. It's not a put-on or put-off list. It's a descriptive list. Here's what it says. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now that list to us means absolutely nothing. If it anything, it's it's weird. I mean, what is a Scythian? Is that on Star Wars? What, What is a Scythian? So we don't know what this list means, but. When this verse was written, 20 years after Christ, everybody knew what this list was talking about. Because you know what this list is? This was the current list of the day that listed the categories of people, determining how people should be treated. So if you were a Jew, you treated Greeks this way. If you were a Greek, you treated Jews that way. If you were a barbarian, you treated Scythians this way. And we've got our own lists. And whatever group you're part of, whatever culture you grew up in, you learned this is how you treat those people, and this is how you treat that, that group. And our world is clamoring to get people to stop using these lists, and it's just not working for all of the emotions and the tears. And the, It shouldn't be like this. It continues to be like this. There are lists like this in every time and in every place. But for Christians, what it's saying here is the normal people divisions melt away. They don't exist anymore. Sure, there are still Greeks and Jews. There are still different cultures. There are different classes. There are different categories of people. But that in no way informs us how they should be treated, how they should be valued, whether or not they should be loved. For us as Christians, Christ has removed all of these categories. So, if you're a Christian, you have the potential to do what the world is trying to figure out how to do. Not because you're better than everyone else, but because you're following the one who can conduct a different world. So, if you're a Christian, you will practice putting off your old patterns of anger and manipulation. They're not just going to go away, you're going to have to practice diligently at this. And if you're a Christian, you're not going to wait for things like compassion and kindness and humility just to kind of bubble up into your heart and you just love everyone. No, instead, like a musician, you will practice the scales of these instruments so that you can use them when Christ conducts you to love this person now, to forgive this person now to be kind to this person today. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we are so grateful for your forgiveness, your compassion, your kindness, well, your love for us. It would be wrong for us to receive what you have given and then turn around and give something very different. We struggle with these patterns. We get angry when we don't get what we want. We try to make people feel guilty when they haven't in fact done anything wrong just to get them to do what we want them to do. We punish them with our emotions. Help us to practice the putting off and the putting on. We live in a world that is like the world has always been, full of categories and full of divisions and full of hate. And for all of the progress that the world is supposed to be making, it continues to descend. Jesus, only you can conduct the harmony that we idealize and that we want. We don't have the power to change the whole world. We can't end every conflict and all the strife. But with your help, we can love the people you put in our path. We can begin to experience the harmony in the circles that you've put us in. Help us, we ask. And we pray this now in the name of our conductor, Jesus Christ. Amen.